Let's finish Haggai 1. What do you say? So Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12. If you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you. Um, you are free to, to pick it up and use it. And if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to take it, uh, consider it a gift from the church, and make it your own copy of God's Word. But Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12. If you don't know where Haggai is, it's okay to look in the front of your Bible, to look at the index to find it. Uh, but I would encourage you to pick up either your Bible or a Bible because we're, we're going to spend our time in it, right? And so you'll be bored without the scriptures. So Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We know that it is difficult at times to know that God is present. There are those moments in our lives Right, after the big storm has rolled through town and, and you drive to your field and you realize that hail has cut down all of your crops. Or when you go into the office of your boss because they want to meet with you and they say, listen, I'm sorry, but times are tough and we have to cut your job. Or when you sit in the doctor's office and the doctor dread, says the dreaded words, cancer. These are moments where it's easy to think to, your, to yourself or even to say out loud, where is God? Where is he right now in my pain? Where is he in my hurt? But do we, when there's a great harvest? Do we, when there is that promotion at work, do we every sweet morning with our family, and even those not so sweet mornings with our family, ask the same question? Do we question God's goodness and his presence when things are going well? Because friends, here's the reality, and here's what Haggai is going to push us towards today as we have finished his first sermon and see how the people of Israel respond. God is present in the drought, and God is present in the rain. The reality is God is in control, and God is good, and he is using all things not just the good and beneficial things, not just the things that make us happy and feel comfortable, but he's using all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, do not forget that God is in control and that God is good. So we begin in verse 12. Remember that in Haggai, we are presented with sermons that the prophet Haggai is giving to the returned exiles. They have returned from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And God has called them out because they've built the walls, they've rebuilt their homes, and they haven't dealt with the temple and so Haggai preaches this sermon telling them that they have paneled 
walls on their homes, but they have not rebuilt the temple. And here is how the people of God respond. In verse 12, we're told this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So we begin with Zerubbabel. First, it's a funny name, right? It's kind of funny to say. It rolls off the tongue. Interestingly, I guess we could say. Zerubbabel, his, his name means seed of Babylon. And that's an interesting name for a Jewish person returning from Persia to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But Zerubbabel is serving as the regional governor for the people of Israel sent by the king of Persia. And he is a descendant of David. He's in the line of the kings of Israel. And not only is he a descendant of David, but Matthew tells us that he is one of the great, great, great grandparents of Jesus. So the seed of Babylon is part of the reason that we have Jesus. And it's funny to think how the seed of Babylon has come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that Babylon tore down. Friends, do not, this is not the main point of the sermon, but do not miss what God is telling us here. There have been people from the beginning of time that have sought to work against God and his people. And it may seem like they are successful in the moment. But let me remind you that for 15 euros, you can go into the Colosseum in Rome and look where the emperors of Rome had Christians fed to the lions. The Roman Empire is nothing today. The church of God continues. For a small fee, you can go to the pyramids in Egypt. And you can think of how God's people as slaves helped build that great empire. None of us are afraid of the Pharaoh of Egypt anymore. And yet God's people continue on. The seed of Babylon has returned to rebuild the temple. So you have the regional governor in Zerubbabel, and you have Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This means he is the one who, in Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, stands before God on behalf of the people to confess their sins, to pray their sins unto two separate goats, one that is led out into the wilderness to take their sins away, the other one who is sacrificed to stand in the place of the people of Israel for their sins. The high priest is the one who represents God. And interestingly enough, his name Joshua, which in the Hebrew is Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Do not forget, and I don't want to confuse you here, but do not forget that Jesus' name is Yeshua, right? So Joshua is when you take the name Yeshua and turn it into English. Jesus is the name where you take the Greek Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew Yeshua and translated into English, okay? And so Yahweh saves. God saves his people. 
We see Zerubbabel, we see Joshua, and we see all the remnant of the people. They respond to Haggai's sermon. They respond to his message. The word remnant is used 66 times in the Old Testament and 57 times in the prophets. The remnant is the people of Israel that remained faithful to God. These are the ones who have been left behind because God is going to use them because of their faithfulness. These are the ones who are here now, obeying God and listening to his prophet and doing what they're told. And we're told at the end of verse 12 that the people feared the Lord. Again, this is not cowering in the corner from an abuser. This is a reverent and worshipful people who want to do what honors the Lord. And so Haggai sets up, this is where we are now. The people of God, including their leadership, are fearing the Lord. And then in verse 13, it says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Now notice this. Up until this point, it has always been Haggai the prophet. But here, the Hebrew is changed, and it says Haggai the messenger. This is the same word that is used for angels in the Old Testament and also for ambassadors. And what, what the Lord is trying to tell us through his word is not that Haggai all of a sudden became an angel, right? Humans don't become angels. We don't sprout wings. We are human from the day we are born until Christ returns and gives us our resurrected bodies. We are people, all right. This isn't to say that all of a sudden he has become some sort of ambassador for the king of Persia. No, what, what God is telling us through his prophet here is that he is really speaking on God's behalf. He is really, truly God's messenger. And just like you wouldn't question an angel, right? In the Old Testament, when an angel shows up, how do the people of God respond? They fall on their face because they know their sinfulness. They know the holiness of God and they're afraid they're going to die in front of his presence. And just like you wouldn't question an ambassador who comes to town with the king's signet ring to say, this is a message from the king. Just like you wouldn't question them, the people did not question Haggai. And God doesn't want them to question him because of what he's about to say. Haggai tells them, I am with you, declares the Lord. There's a couple things we need to understand here. First, God has always been with them. He has always been present, right? God is present in the drought. He's present when he disciplines his people. He's also present in the rain when he blesses his people. And so what he says, or what he means when he says, I am with you, is that, listen, Israel, I was working against you. I was bringing drought into the land. I was going to, to shake you into realizing that what you are doing is wrong. But because of your act of obedience, because of your repentance and your faithfulness to what you heard from Haggai, now I am working on your behalf. And this reminds us, friends, if you're taking notes, this is the first point, that God bends the world to his aims, his glory, and the salvation of his people. God bends the world to his aims, his glory, 
and the salvation of his people. God wants two things, for him to be glorified and for his people to be saved. And he bends the world towards those two objectives. I think of some of the plants that are in my backyard. I've got this Mexican elder that's pretty impressive, right? It's, it's grown pretty tall. But whenever a wind comes, like a strong, powerful wind, there are large chunks of trunk that fall off of that Mexican elder, right? Because it is not pliable. It does not bend. It is, it is there and it is stiff. But then I've got these young pecan trees, right, that, that move and sway with the wind. Friends, you can either bend to God's will now and worship him, or you will be caught up in his judgment. As we look at the, 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 the order of salvation across the scriptures, we're reminded that with the people of Israel, God told them, obey and I will act on your behalf. And we see again and again in our Old Testament that they cannot obey on their own. They need the gracious movement of God in their hearts and in their lives to help them obey. It is the same thing for us, friends. But the reality is with the New Testament, Jesus becomes our active obedience, if we repent of our sins and we trust in his work on the cross and in the resurrection, then all that he is and all that he has is ours. And we gain his obedience. When God looks at our lives, if we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus, God sees the work of Christ. And so unbeliever, you have to understand that all lives glorify God and your life will glorify God. And there's only two ways that can happen. One is you remain in your unbelief and God punishes you for your sins and for your unbelief. Or you repent of your unbelief. You repent of your sinful rebellion and you turn and believe in Jesus. Christian, as you hear this reality that God bends the world to his aims, you need to be pliable for God. You need to stand before God and say, use me however you desire. Use me at my job. Use me in the church. Use me in my family and in my neighborhood. And friends, in the public square, while we're pliable for God, we want to be oaks of righteousness in the culture. Do not bend to the whims of culture. Stand upon the truths of God's word. And friends, in the church, as the church, we need to be a place where roots can grow. This body of believers needs to focus our energy on worship on making our hearts happy in the Lord, on preaching the Bible and hearing it preached. Friends, you need a steady diet of the word and you need it in your own home, reading it yourself. You need it reading together with brothers and sisters in Christ and you need to hear it preached. We need disciples made using the scriptures.
And we need evangelism to be a priority. Telling the people who do not know the good news about the good news of Jesus. So we move to verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. Friends, this reminds us of a few things. One, this is God working in the hearts of his people. Friends, there is only one person who changes hearts, and it's him. I was telling the youth today in Sunday school as we were talking about miracles, no argument gets someone into heaven. You cannot argue someone into belief. They have to repent of their sins and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the only way that happens is if God works in them. The second thing we need to see is that this idea of being stirred up, it, it, the word literally means to shake awake or to jolt into action. And so our English translation has this this vision of stirring something so vigorously that it it comes awake, that it is mixed with such vigor that it realizes where it's been going is wrong and it needs to repent. Do not forget that it is their spirits that are stirred up. Friends, we are more than our physical bodies. And God is in the business of jolting souls. He delights in awaking sinners to their sins and awaking them to the goodness of his grace, mercy, and love. You're not just a physical being who needs food and shelter. You are not just merely an animal. You are a human that is created in the image of God with a soul that longs for him. So their spirits are stirred and they come and work in the house. The first thing we need to see here is that they obeyed. They obeyed the call of God. They paid attention to his glory They knew that the temple was important for the good of God's people. And on top of all of this, they did it for their God, who is the God of angel armies, who is the God who hung the stars and shaped the mountains and filled the depths of the sea. They belong to the God of the universe. Not a mere local God like the Persian gods and the Babylonian gods. They belong to the one true God. Verse 15. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So this is when and where they respond. 
They respond after 23 days. Haggai shows up and preaches on the first day of the sixth month. And they respond on the 23rd day, being convicted of their sin, repenting of it, and obeying the word of God. Friends, the one thing that I love about verse 15 is that this reminds us that this isn't just some mythological fairy tale that somebody wrote to convince people that there's a God. This is actual, true, and historical. This is, this is an event that took place. Nobody that, nobody that understands and studies the history of Iran and you know, like Persia, right, would question that there was a King Darius. It's known. No, no, nobody questions the reality of this man living. And so the Bible putting this in its historical context reminds us that God has been working in real lives during real moments. Now, there is something we need to take note of here. That last part of verse 15, in the second year of Darius the king. I want to remind you of a couple of things before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, okay? The Bible, as we have it, is a collection of writings from different folks across thousands of years. Now, we believe that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to these folks who wrote it down. And we believe that the words in our Bible are inerrant from the Lord. That they are Him speaking to us through human authors. But the chapters in your Bible were not added until the year 1227. So all of the biblical authors were long gone when chapters were added to your Bible. And on top of that, verses weren't added until 1551, which, may I remind you, is well after Christopher Columbus hopped in a boat and came here. The Santa Fe and Jamestown, Virginia, were already founded by the time that verses were added to our scriptures. I tell you this for this reason. The words of the Bible are inspired by God. The chapters and verses are not. And the end of verse 15 should be part of chapter 2, verse 1. Okay? And the reason I tell you this is go back to, to chapter 1, verse 1, which begins, like the book of Haggai begins, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. And so we remember that Biblical authors like to write things in order. And so I'm not sure why the men who added verses did this or the men who added chapters, but this, this is what they did. And so just a gentle reminder, we will read the end of verse 15 next week because we want to continue the story, but I don't want you to doubt the veracity and the truth of the Bible. But I want you to know that sometimes the chapters and verses are in weird places, places they should not be. Fair enough? So, here's our second point. God jolts the hearts of his people to care and work for his glory and the good of his people. 
God jolts the hearts of his people to care and work for his glory and the good of his people. So as we think about this, remember, the temple needs to be rebuilt. And we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. We'll talk about it again today. When we speak of the temple and we compare it to the church, we're not comparing building to building. Remember, the temple is where God went to meet with his people in Israel. And Ephesians 2 tells us that the body of believers, those people that make up the local church, they serve together as the temple of God. And so as we we mention that the temple needed to be tended to, and we say that the church needs to be tended to, we're not saying that the building needs to be tended to. Now, of course it does, right? We, we don't want holes in our floors and, and lights out. We need to tend to the building. But that's not the main work of the church. The main work of the church is discipleship of the people that are in the church and evangelism of those that are outside of the church so that the church can mature and grow. And so, friends, we need to remind ourselves as we hear that God jolts the hearts of his people to care and work for, the, for his glory and the good of his people, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus died for the church. He died to win back his bride. And he lives for the church. He stands at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf in our prayers. And the Holy Spirit was sent to equip and empower the church. And it's a fair question, right? It's a fair question to say, well, why do we not feel so empowered? The church today does a lot of equipping, right? We are working hard at thinking of how to better equip each one of you to be a growing disciple who makes disciples. That's, that's the heart of your pastor and your church. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just equip, he also empowers. When you look at the book of Acts, you read again and again, and the word came with power. And I think oftentimes we don't feel empowered as believers because we're not attempting great things for the glory of God. We're not sharing the gospel like we should. We're not praying over the sick like we should. To see the power of God revealed means to act in obedience to what he's called you to do and to know that he's going to accomplish his will. And so, yeah, if we're not sharing the gospel with people, we're not going to feel like we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we're not taking great risks for the kingdom, we're not going to feel empowered by God. So non-Christian, when you hear this reality that God jolts the heart of his people, don't harden your heart against it. Don't fight against the work of the Spirit in your heart. Respond with repentance of your sins and faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. Christian, as you feel this jolt to your spirit, as you hear the call to care for God's glory and work towards it and to care for the people of God and to work towards it, 
Care about your church. Love these people. Commit yourself to these people. Seek to honor them. Seek to be grown by them and to help them grow. Take ownership of this church. Don't talk about it as the Baptist church or that church that I attend. Call it my church. See this as your family. Feel when you walk into the sanctuary or into the fellowship hall that you are entering into the living room of your family. Work for the betterment of the people of God. There is a long list of things that this church needs to make better disciples. We need homes that will open in the fall for small groups. We need folks that are, are, are called to lead these small groups. We need more children's church teachers and more nursery workers and more preschool teachers. There are plenty of places, and there, listen, there are places for involvement where you are gifted that I'm not even aware of. But if it can help make disciples and help reach those that don't know Jesus, I want to know about it. Your leadership wants to know about it. We want each of you to have your ministry here. Because Ephesians 4 is clear. That's what my job as your pastor is, to equip you to do the work of the church. Friends, long for discipleship to happen here. Long for disciples to be made. Hurt, I mean, like, have your heart broken when disciples aren't being made here. Have your heart broken when people are continuing in immaturity rather than growing in maturity. And thirst for God's glory here. Desire to see the name of Jesus lifted high among his people. When you are in the public square, seek to represent Jesus. Do the work of an evangelist. Share the gospel. And when I say share the gospel, I'm not saying, you know, have gospel conversations. Be quick to turn your conversations to the way that Jesus is growing you. Be quick to turn the conversations towards God and his hand in your life. Represent Jesus and help people plug into his church. Church, we, we can be one of two things for people. We can either be a defibrillator or we can be a stumbling block. We can help through worship and the word preached and, and, and Bible-based discipleship to jolt hearts into glorifying God or we can turn people away from God. And my hope, my dream for this church is that we would be awakening people to the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus. That we would not be causing people to stumble over the truth. My hope is that we would see people with completely messed up lives 
having them turned and changed by the good news of Jesus Christ, by the truth of his death on the cross and the truth of the empty resurrection. I want to tell you very quickly about a man named John. John grew up on the coast of England. He grew up with a seafaring father. And so he joined the British Navy. And since he knew a lot about boats and, and sea travel, he was quite insubordinate. And so he was kicked out of the Navy. In fact, the ship he was on was in present-day Jamaica, and they said, get off the ship or we kill you. So he got off the ship, thousands of miles from home, and he began working on a slave ship. And he rose up to become the captain of his own slave ship. And it was one day while he was sailing, and a terrible storm came, that he cried out, Save me, Lord. And that did something to his heart. When the ship was saved, he began to read the Bible. He began to ask questions. He quickly became converted. But he continued as a slave ship captain. He would bring Anglican pastors on the boat with him, and they would have church service every morning, both for the slaves and for those and for the crew. As he grew in his faith, he stopped bringing pastors with him, and he started leading those services himself. Eventually, he quit. Um, he quit captaining ships to become a pastor himself. And through his study of scripture, he came to realize that slavery was evil and it was wrong and it had to be stopped. And he became friends with a young man who was in, Brit in the British Parliament named William Wilberforce. And he discipled William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce helped end slavery in England and in all the British lands Years before America did the same. This man was named John Newton. And that name may not sound familiar, but you know one of his greatest works. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Friends, there are John Newtons all across the Hatch Valley. There are men and women who are running away from God, rebelling against him. And maybe you're one of them sitting in here right now. And the truth is, is that the gospel of Jesus jolts hearts into repentance and faith and a desire for God's glory and for the, for the building up of God's people. And so my encouragement to you today is to know this is true. And to respond with a desire for God to be glorified and for his people to be built up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for, for the display of your glory in it. Father, I thank you for Haggai and his ministry. I thank you for his faithfulness to you and, and to the people of God. And Father, I pray that we would respond 
for those of us that are unbelievers, that we would respond with turning from our sins and placing our faith in Christ. And Father, for believers to, to have a hunger for your glory and, and to, to care about your people. Father, we, we thank you that the good news of Jesus is not out of the reach of anyone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.